Welcome to Mark here. And if those of you, anybody look at watching online, if you could smell in here, we've cooked bacon. It smells really good this morning. So it's good stuff here. So we'll continue on with our Mark Bible study here. Just a quick recap. Last week I introduced the book of Mark and we spent uh, quite a bit of time just kind of on some introductory points. We covered who Mark was. Recall that he, he's not an apostle. But we, we went through the scripture and saw on a number of occasions where um, in the New Testament we do learn that Mark was really closely associated with the Apostle Peter, a lot of stuff with Peter, and then in fact also with Paul, uh, possibly was around uh, Mark's mother's house, uh, possibly housed um, when Jesus did the, the Institute of the Last Supper, of course, that's kind of speculation. But in any event, we looked through a number of things that sh- showing that Mark was actually then he, there, that he was there in the action. He listened to Peter preach and then also Paul. And as a result, we conclude that, you know, this book truly is authentic. Um, he was a witness to most of this stuff and, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this book. Um, also talked briefly about the priorities here. Uh, some people uh, asserted that Mark was written first. Um, I think I, I showed that, no, Matthew and Luke came first, and Mark uh, followed up, and that's important for a number of reasons we talked about last time. Um, so again, the Gospel of Mark is really written upon the oral presentations of Peter during his ministry, and then of also Paul. So uh, we did look right off the bat here. Um, it uh, verse one. What is what is? How does Mark open this entire gospel? It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that actually should the way I look at it is if we're looking at this book, that's the book cover and that's the title right at the beginning, right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, so let's open here uh, with the invocation and prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, like I just said, we did cover a few verses here last week, just briefly. We went over uh, verse 1-1. I just talked about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is really important that Mark starts off with this. And this is the whole basis for the, the, the book of Mark here. Um, the gospel, of course, is the good news of salvation of all men. And it's centered in... Jesus Christ, who's the beginning, the middle, and the end. Jesus, the Redeemer, the Savior, and the Christ, the Anointed One of God. And I'll talk more about that here in a minute. Uh, Son of God, of course, right off the bat, what does Mark say here? Makes it clear who Jesus is, the Son of God. Uh, The Son of God here means what it means throughout Scripture, that the Son of God is the eternal, co-equal, essential Son, the second person of the Godhead. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's the good news that these people need to hear and what we need to hear, that sinners, us sinners, we do need a Savior. 
Um, last week we covered um, also verses 2 and 3, which it really introduces uh, John the Baptist. Talked about this some. Um, recall this uh, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Uh, we looked in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 at this. This is what this is. Uh, Mark is referencing here. And we also actually looked at uh, Malachi 3.1 that has similar language here about this, this person, this prophesying John the Baptist who was in um, the desert preparing the way of the Lord to make his path straight. And that's really the sum of what this was. This is the sum of John's, John the Baptist's preaching was that it was his work in prep- preparation for Christ's coming, which we're going to see. Okay? All righty, now moving in, let's see, let's finish the rest of this section and then we'll move on to the baptism of Jesus and then possibly get into, I think we'll get into the temptation of Jesus and then uh, see if we can get through all of that uh, today if we can, but if not. So does anyone have any questions about anything we talked about last week or where we are here? Here? Okay. All right, let's move on then. We're going to finish up... uh, Verses 4 through 8, and I'll read those and then we'll come back to them. So, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John appeared, baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me, come, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right, John the Baptist here. So let's look at verse 4 here. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So in fulfilling this prophecy, John the Baptist was in the wilderness, okay, as said, as was prophesied in Isaiah 40 and Malachi, what we talked about, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. So here, John is in the wilderness uh, he appeared out in the arid regions between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. And I did print out, I mean, this map isn't the best, but I mean, just to get some reference here. You can see where it says Christ baptism site. This is where John was uh, in between uh, Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, which you can see there, kind of in between there. Um, uh, he began his ministry as what? As one that baptized. So I would want to talk about this some a bit. Um, so he made use of this right by God's express command. Um, so, but the baptism here that we talked about, this was a proclamation of the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So what does that mean? 
Um, I'm, I, as I told you, as I prepare for this class, I'm using a number of commentaries, but I'm also referring to some of the lectures that Dr. Peter Skier gave, and then actually uh, Dr. Art Just, who's a wrote our Matthew commentary, kind of went back into, the, into their notes. And there's some really interesting stuff here. And I'm going to tell you what Dr. Just says, which is consistent with most of the other commentaries. So John's baptism, we think, how is this and what does this relate for us today? So it is John's baptism, was, which is, is called purificatory. That's a word. So it, and it's not initiatory. Okay, so let me explain the difference, though. Uh, baptism now is an initiatory, which it saves us, right? And we're going to look at that here in a bit. But this, John's baptism, is more of a purification process where the baptism is really for cleanses for the forgiveness of sins. And now this is, you're being cleansed for the purpose of, so you can meet Jesus. So that's what this kind of John's baptism is. It's different than what Jesus when Jesus got baptized, which I'll talk about, and then the Christian baptism that we have today. So really this baptism is seen simply as a preparatory baptism, preparation uh, for the coming Lord. It was preparing God's people, again, for the coming Messiah. And um, uh, Dr. Justin, most of the uh, commentaries we read in our Lutheran theologians say this is John's baptism is not Christian baptism, but there are similarities. Um, and in fact, Dr. Just said to equate them as an overstatement. And I'll talk about this here more in a minute. So we look at this, John is uh, baptizing as really this preparatory baptism. So then later, I'm sorry? Later on, they would have to go to Hmm, that's a good question. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Probably so. Yeah. yeah. Remember, you, I think in, I don't know, in Acts chapter, when Peter, I mean, uh, Paul talked to them and they were baptized by yeah. John baptism. That's were, right, yeah, yeah. And, and I, they actually, had to go back. That's right, yeah. And yes, so that, yeah. the answer is yes. That's it, yeah. And, and I do kind of, we'll kind of read one of that as we get closer here, too. So, yes, uh, different uh, baptism here. Um, okay, so John then appeared baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So baptism and repentance are intimately related here. So there's this order that John's doing. It's a cleansing, then a change within. Okay, So I do want to talk a little bit about repentance and what this means in the Greek. Um, so here it's it's... We need to look at this as that repentance was the purpose as a result of the baptism, not the basis for which the baptism took place. So the, re- I, the reason I say this is when we really look deep into what this word means. But first of all, the action of the washing and the action of repenting are both to be understood as God's activities and not man. Okay, So let me follow up on this. And in the, in the small catechism under the Apostles' Creed, <clears throat> question 195, it says, What is the special role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation? Answer, by the law of God, the Spirit brings people to repentance. And by the gospel, that is the means of grace, he brings them to faith in Christ. We call this conversion or regeneration. And the important term there, which I'm going to get at here at the end, is 
the Spirit brings people to repentance. We also see in the small catechism on question 201, why did the Holy Spirit do what he what did the Holy Spirit do when he brought me to faith? By means of the law of the God, the Holy Spirit first convicts me of my sin and leads me to repentance. Okay. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this, that this talking of repentance in this baptism is the, uh, still a work of God. So if you guys have your Lutheran study Bible in front of you, if not, I'll kind of help walk through looking at this a little bit in deeper. If you want to turn to page 1080, <clears throat> 1080. There's lots of neat stuff in the Lutheran Study Bible, by the way. Um, so this is kind of a glossary here, but this helps kind of prove my point and the point I'm talking about, about what this repentance means, what repentance meant in the Old Testament, what repentance meant at the time of John the Baptist, and now what actually repentance means for us today. So if you look in the study Bible on 1080 in the left-hand column, we see repent. Can you go? And then repent says, see turn. Okay. So then go to the next column, you'll see turn. And here's where I really want to focus on here. So this this idea of repentance is also equated with this idea of turning, right? And this actually comes, repentance to turn, from a Hebrew term. And the Hebrew term, as you can see here, it's Hebrew. They say, the study Bible says shub, S-H-U-B. So that's the term. We, in Fort Wayne, in our Hebrew, the B can either be a B or a V. So I'm sure Pastor did too. We learned this term as shuv with a V. Okay. So if you ever hear shub or shuv, that's the same word. And shuv then means the same thing, to turn or turn around. You guys see that? So, and this verb then, shuv, very important term in the Old Testament, as you can see here, it's used over a thousand times in the Old Testament, and it um, appropriately translate repent in more than a hundred cases in the Old Testament. So, shuv, repent, okay? That's what we're turning about, shuv, either turn or repent. So, in, in, and it says here, appropriately translate repent more than 100 cases, uh, most often in Jeremiah. But then here, here's the, the point that I'm making, and I'm, I'm talking about all this repentance here. Repentance is God's work. And there's a, a note of Jeremiah 13, 8, 8, 18, that leads a person to renounce sin, requesting God's mercy and returning to his way. Um, so that's, that's very important when we talk about the, this repentance. It's still, this is the Holy Spirit, God. This is God who is turning you around. Uh, shuv, most of the time, too, is also in, in, in the Hebrew in a kind of a passive sense. So it's where the God is doing the turning. God actually is repenting you. 
And this is what repentance is. It's the work of the Holy Spirit and God actually repenting you, changing you to, um, to the gospel, to repentance. So this is what John, through the baptism of John, God made for himself a cleansed, right? Because this is still the washing that John was doing with the water. But it's God doing this. And God then repenting his people. What for? This was all in preparation for the visitation and the coming of the Messiah. So this is what we're talking about when we're looking at what John was doing. Still baptism, a different baptism, preparatory in nature, and of repentance. But again, all this is done uh, by the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, any questions on that? All right, so let's go back to Mark here. Mm-hmm. When we went to see the Dead Sea Scrolls yes. in San Diego, I, one thing that struck me is that they had baptismal vats. In, I'm sorry, they had baptismal what? They were like vats or, mm-hmm. you know, like little swimming pools. Right. And I said, oh, they baptized in the Old Testament. And I said, yeah. And that struck me as odd. So would John have been continuing that sort of practice? Maybe so. I think maybe it was all preparatory. It had to be preparatory in nature. Yeah, absolutely. I think the stress here was more of a repentance to it as well. So maybe that would have been the additional. Additional. But, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you had a question. Oh, okay. <laughs> sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, in Acts 2, I think um, Peter's sermon. Uh, what I recall the sequence is that the, his words went out and the, the people were convicted uh, of their sin in their heart. And in this context, I guess what we're saying is then that God is repenting them. And then they turned to the brothers, the apostles, and said, what shall we do? And, you know, basically turn to God and be baptized. Mm-hmm. So there the baptism happens after the repentance. And then I guess repentance follows on afterwards. Too, Continual right? process, right. So it's kind of like a, okay. It's a daily drown. Remember, we, we, I've talked about this before. It says daily drowning of the old man and the new man rises, right? Yeah, daily repentance in your baptism. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Good point. And again, there's a number of couple references to baptism. We'll, we'll keep absolutely keep jumping back to this because we're actually there's three kind of different baptisms we're looking at here. It's the baptism of John, the baptism of Jesus, which I'll speak about in a minute, and then what that means for Christian baptism today. So good. So then baptizing there, we talked about, again, John baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay? So then... Verse 5, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So really, this was the effect of John's preaching. He's preaching, and these people are coming, right? And they're going into the river Jordan. I thought this was neat. I looked into this. So 
The Jordan was the chief river of Israel and her land. So this is the, the big river. And recall that the Jordan was the beginning of Israel's new life under Joshua. Israel crossed the river Jordan. Remember, it was separated on dry ground. And the people of Israel walked into the Holy Land, this same area, right? So this is cool now. This is where Jesus and John are. So sign of similarity there, similarities here. So after 40 years in the desert then of the Israelites, it was the place of her entry into this new land, flowing with milk and honey, which I'll talk about more here in a minute, or the new creation. So milk, so this, they went into this new land, a new creation. Now here it is where John is baptizing and where Jesus is baptizing, which also we're entering into this new creation through Jesus. So some neat similarities there uh, with, or with the Jordan River in this area. Okay. Let's see. Anything else about that? Where Jesus went out and baptized. Okay. Verse 6 here. This is very interesting too. Now John, I know you guys have heard this before. We've all heard it. But some interesting things I looked up on this about what's going on here. And it's this, this, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Yum, right? (laughs) So my first question here is what's up with this guy's appearance, right? What's he doing? He's wearing camel hair or leather belt. Oh, I guess leather belt's okay, but the camel hair. So... What The dress of John the Baptist is really intended to invoke the figure of Elijah. So if you guys would, if you want, or I can read it to you, if you'll turn to 1 Kings, it's page 578, or 579 in the Lutheran Study Bible here. 579. 1 Kings. Uh, so you see, Eli- go to 1 Kings 1 1. Actually, I'm going to take you through it, just kind of see what's going on here. So this is um, verse 2 Kings 1 1. Second. Sec- yeah, sorry, 2 Kings. Did I say 1 Kings? 2 Kings 1 1, page 579 in our study Bible. So 2 Kings 1 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in the upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick, so he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, it is because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed by which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king and, and said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, 
Thus says the Lord, it is because there is no God in Israel that you are sinning to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron. Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And then the king says, well, who said this? Or he said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him. He wore a garment of hell, hair and a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. So in this, you see that there. I want to read the whole story about Elijah's prophecy there. This is a, Elijah, of course, was a man who um, was a prophet. He's doing it here. And so we see the similarities then. The appearance of John uh, then was mirroring Elijah, which, of course, these people around this time would have known much about Elijah. So this John dressing like this obviously was calling more attention to his message. It's like, what is this guy on the desert who's dressing like Elijah? Um, because the people of Judea in this area were actually familiar with this description of the Old Testament here of the great prophet Elijah. So this seems to indicate that the hair possibly wearing this camel hair became a sign of those uttering prophetic speech among God's people. Okay, And then also the leather belt, we saw that there, John's leather belt also evokes Elijah who wore an identical piece of clothing. So that's one. That's the reason, I guess, for why John was dressed then. Okay. So then, any questions on that or follow up? I'm sure, maybe you guys have heard that before. Um, then the second thing, though. So it's just kind of the weird here about the camel's hair and leather belt. What's the second thing kind of crazy about this? Is he ate locusts and wild honey. So the next, what's up with the food? What's up with the dress and now the food? He ate locusts and wild honey. When you look at the Greek, it could be interpreted grasshoppers and wild honey, but that doesn't make it any more appetizing, I guess, grasshoppers. But why is this? So when you look into this more, in Leviticus 11, 21 through 22, we won't read it here, but grasshoppers um, were a clean food, okay? And it was an unclean under Levitical law. So this is... Grasshopper provided John food that was that was uh, clean. Okay. Uh, second, then the wild honey, wild honey, being wild was also not subject to the tithing that was required um, of domesticated honey under Mosaic law, and that's in Second Chronicles thirty-one five. So. Maybe you know John is following you know the, the Mosaic law and what he's doing out there, um, but. Um, taken together, it may be just simply that John kind of led this aesthetic lifestyle uh, using this sustenance from the land while at the same time conforming to Mosaic law. So there you have it. If you wondered why he's eating grasshoppers or locusts and honey, um, this is what people are speculating. I think it's right, actually, especially when you read the Levitical laws, the Mosaic law. Um, Just a little bit briefly more on honey here. we see honey. Honey suggests maybe more. So if you'll turn with me real quick, and I hope that's okay that I'm turning. I think it's cool kind of we look at some of this stuff in context too. It's good to look at the Old Testament things. I love that. So if you'll turn to Deuteronomy 32, which is on page 329 of our Bible study, of our Lutheran um, study Bible. So what else about John eating 
honey can be a reminder of this. So it's 32, Deuteronomy 32. And this is in the Song of Moses, singing about the, the people of Israel and everything that's gone on. If you'll look at then 32, 13, Moses sings, He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he sucked him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the filthy rock. So here we are, the references of honey uh, in this time of the Israelites. And then in Psalm 18, or Psalm 81 of 16, 81, 16 if you want to go to page 927. Again, it's Psalm 81. 927. Okay, we see that here. Psalm 81. Um, Title, that my people would listen to me. Um, and you'll see 81, uh, verse 16, but he, but he would freed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock, rock I would satisfy you. So both of which speak of the children of Israel in the wilderness who were also eating honey, as John did, was, was here in the wilderness. Um, that, thus, it could, this, this honey could also signify that to these, the, the people of Jerusalem and Judea at the time of John, that you know your God is at work once again in the desert where you as a people were born, leading you in or on his way. But really, on the other hand, too, some commentators say the honey as food invokes the image of the land. Remember this quote, flowing with milk and honey, and that the people of Israel entered after the people of Israel entered after their wanderings. And we see this in Numbers 14.8. We won't turn there. And then Joshua 5.6. And it provides this image with the features of the new, new creation. So the land flowing with milk and honey. Remember the Israelites were heading there to the promised land. This was their, the, the new place where they were. John here eating honey. All this stuff with the Jordan, the same kind of same thing, signifying that this would be uh, this this new creation. Then that's going to be coming out through John's baptism, who he's preaching about, which is Jesus, the new creation here. So with these two explanations regarding honey, when taken together, signify that God is at work among His people, renewing both them and His creation around them at the end of times. So. Interesting. So now you know why John addressed the way he is and why he's eating yummy grasshoppers. Okay, let's go back to Mark here. Any follow-up or any questions on that? Does that sound... Um, so that's what's going on. Okay, so we talked about that here. Now let's go on here. Then what is he doing here in verse 1-7? And he preached saying... After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So this is some really good imagery language here. Um, could, after me comes 
he who is mightier than I actually could be translated from the uh, from the Greek, the one stronger than I is coming. I don't think that matters. Um, this is a Sunday school question for you guys now. Uh, who do you think John's talking about? <laughs> but the one right answer in every good Sunday school class is Jesus, right? The one stronger than I is coming. Who is this? Is Jesus. Here Mark shows really the heart of what John the Baptist is preaching, and John is preaching this great proclamation of the coming Messiah. Okay? So interesting also other language here on this of what now John's doing to compare himself to the coming Messiah. We don't know this much today because we didn't have to, to we don't wear sandals like they used to do, but let's kind of, let me take you through this and you can see it because we'll, we'll get it. So the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Okay, so what's going on with this language? Again, this is just showing how much greater the Messiah is than John himself. And that's why he's using this language. Why? Because during that time, it was the humblest slave, the lowest of all low slaves or servants around, which during this time we know that there was a lots of servants here, different kind of slavery than what we're that we know nowadays, but these were just servant people, but the lowest of the lowest was responsible for untying the sandals. So they were responsible for unfasting the straps that held the masters or the guest sandals and take the sandals off their feet. Then they would take the sandals and clean them off, or first they would clean the feet, and then they would take the sandals and also clean the sandals off. And again, this was the job as the, of the lowliest servant. <clears throat> now when you read through this account, this account is also in the other two uh, synoptic gospels. We, we just read this here in Mark, but it's also in Matthew and in Luke. But there is a couple little differences here. Uh, Matthew says refers only to that the servant would carry the sandals away, okay? Um, And then Luke, though, Luke would say, untying the sandals. But then it is Mark, actually, that adds this one other thing to it. Mark says, uh, he adds this, this kind of a real touch of in addition to just take it off. Mark says, I am not worthy to stoop down, okay? So he adds this different this stooping down language. And again, this is the, uh, the really concrete expression, not only that this is the humblest, humblest, but one who stoops down. Stooping down was always uh, viewed as you being lower or what you would do. If someone higher class, we were always stooping down. So here, Mark adds this even extra step of what John was saying, that I'm not worthy to take up the sandals, or even stoop down and untie them. So what the point of all this is, though, of course, is that uh, John is saying this because he's showing how low he is as opposed to the mighty one who's coming, the one stronger than him. So, so great is the difference and contrast between John and Jesus that John does not even feel himself worthy to perform a servant for uh, for him, which a slave might do, okay? He is not worthy to even stoop down before the greatest man and untie the straps 
of his sandals. So how great then must he be? The coming one, of course, we're going to see, which is said here, is God's own son. But even more, the coming one is God in the flesh. So that's why this talk about the sandals are going on. Again, John's using it kind of as a metaphor to show how small John is compared to the one that's coming. So any questions on that or following up? I mean, I know it's not too shocking to hear that. Okay. So now we're getting back into this, this concept of baptism. We kind of talked about it briefly. Then John even adds this further then. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So this is a early, clear indication in Mark's gospel that the coming of the Lord, the stronger one, whose way is being prepared, is in fact the coming of Israel's God in the flesh, the Messiah, as foreseen by the prophets. So what is this relationship here then of kind of where we talk about John's baptism and Christian baptism. I spoke about it a little bit earlier. Again, the two are not identical. John himself testified to that in this verse, contrasting what he is doing versus what the stronger one will do. John's baptism here, what does it say? John baptized with water, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, John's baptism then didn't convey the Holy Spirit as Christian baptism does today. And again, as I talked, John's baptism was a preparatory baptism, preparing God's people for the coming of their Lord. And then Christian baptism then saves. Um, And I'll talk just even a little bit more about that at the end of when we talk about Jesus' baptism. Like I said, it gets better and better there. But it says here... um, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So then, why do Christians baptize with water? Is that right? Is that what John's saying here? No, that's not John we're saying. And in fact, when you guys mentioned it, Barry or whoever, when we look at then baptism after this, after Jesus' baptism, water was applied in early Christian baptisms after Jesus' death and resurrection. We see that a couple places in Acts. Um, Actually, let's turn to that. Acts 10 uh, 46, so it's eight, page 1856. And there's a couple other, but we won't, we won't go through all of them. 1856, so it's Acts 10. Uh, actually, let's start at 44. All right. The Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. While Peter was... Still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gifts of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They, then they asked him to remain for some days. So you can see that baptism obviously uh, still used uh, was water there early on after Jesus' baptism. Um, so we still use water even though it says, but the point is, is that Jesus uh, will convey the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to talk about that, but I first, before we do that, I do want to address uh, Jesus' baptism. And I want to see if I can get through that today because I'd like to 
get through it because I think this is uh, pretty important. So we'll, we'll talk more here about baptism. So let's move on here to look at the baptism of Jesus. You see it on your mark in your study Bible on page 1655. Um, I'm going to read its verses 1 through, or excuse me, verses 9 through 11. Okay, the baptism of Jesus. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, uh, Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Okay. And this is also in the, in the other synoptic gospels, right? There's a little bit more in Matthew on it. It's a, um, but this, this, this gives us enough uh, to talk about. So as we read this, the baptism of Jesus, the first question, I guess, that came to my mind, and may come to your mind as well, and we'd ask, why was Jesus baptized if he was without sin, right? Why? So baptism... You guys know? Let's talk about it. John John asked that question too. Right. Mm-hmm. And John's yeah. And actually, it's in yeah. That's that's a good thing. Uh, that's not included in the Mark text, but it is in the Matthew and Luke. Text. John says, "Why you're so all right?" So now even John asked that question. Why is why is that? Jesus says to fulfill all righteousness. That's right. And we don't get that here in Mark, but that that is right. So to fulfill all unrighteousness. So let me talk just briefly about this. I've done a lot of reading on this um, for a couple of years here. So why was be, there's really two, two things we can see from church fathers and kind of a lot of the theologians in the Lutheran church and, and our commentary. So first, um, when, when Jesus was baptized, uh, he was really, this was where he was ordained into the office of Christ. Um, so sometimes we forget, remember Jesus' name, okay, it's, his name is Jesus, but then it's Jesus Christ, and Christ is now his office. And Christ is, actually means anointed one. So Jesus uh, was not then had this office. I mean, Jesus has always been the Son of God, but when you look at this, is this baptism, or then, then he is the anointed one, and this is the, 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 his, his role, the beginning of his ministry is really starting. This is, this is. So when John baptized Jesus, he is setting him apart, really anointing him for the office of the Messiah, his ministry. And now really here, then, is where his work begins. It is here in his baptism when his work of ultimately from the baptism going directly to the cross, right? The saving work, the redemption, why it was here. So this is really important. That's one of the reasons we see why Jesus was being baptized. Okay. But I think that this other, and I've talked about this in another class, but I want to talk about it again. You guys have maybe heard this analogy before. But the second reason is when he is beginning his work here now, this is what he's doing, the Christ, the anointed one. What he's doing then is going straight to the cross. But what is he going to the cross with and why he was going? 
And this is why he was baptized. I want us to kind of think of this analogy, this, this imagery here. So I want you to picture then, go in the mountains, picture in the mountain, the most beautiful place in the mountains. You look down and you see this lake. It's all out there by itself. And you walk upon this lake and you look at it. And it is the most crystal clear lake you can, you've ever seen. It's beautiful. Look down, there's nothing in the water. Pure, you can see the bottom. Beautiful, pure lake, okay? And all of a sudden then, you start looking and you see all these sheep out there by it. And gosh, these sheep are disgusting. They're all mangy. They've got oil and dirt, grime on them. And what they start doing is you see them, these sheep, start walking into this lake, this beautiful lake. And as they one by one go into this beautiful lake, the grunge starts to come off of them. And then as they walk out, they're beautiful, white, pure. You can hardly look at them. They're so, so clean and white. And they walk out. All these sheep go out and walk away. And now you look at this crystal lake, this beautiful lake. And it's disgusting. It looks like there's oil in it and all this dirt. And it's disgustingly gross. So now it's turned into something, you know. But then you see another sheep come along. Beautiful, white sheep. The clearest unblemished, beautiful sheep comes walking up to this lake now. And the, he, the sheep walks into the lake. And then as he is in it, all the grime, all the dirt come upon that one sheep. And then that one sheep walks out. And that one sheep is all now grindy and mangy as all those other ones were. But then you look at the lake and it's beautifully crystal clear. And this one sheep then that's come out That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? And this is kind of an emory of what Jesus did. It was here in his baptism, too, to fulfill all unrighteousness, where when he was baptized, the sins of the world, our sins, were placed upon him at that point. This is where he was anointed. And then that's where he takes that filth, that grime that he took from us, and that's where he takes that them as the Lamb of God all the way, and he takes it to the cross. And then that's on the cross where your sins were nailed upon that cross and were gone, right? So that, I think, is kind of beautiful imagery of what, what this uh, uh, baptism of Jesus was for. It's the, this is the taking on. This is Jesus is beginning the work of bearing the sins of the world, and he's carrying those sins to the cross. And again, everything culminates to the cross. Now, Luther writes on this, it's good stuff, that in, he calls this the, quote, joyous exchange. Um, and this is what St. Paul anticipates in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So see, that's a great exchange. So when you think about this baptism of Jesus, sometimes people say, why did he do that? Well, he did it to give us an example for us. No, it's more than that. Again, it's where he's initiated. He became anointed with his office of Christ. And then the second part is the imagery of the sheep, when it, what I talked about, going in and taking all of our sins. So any questions or any follow-up on that? Um, is that Paul that writes about that? Um, yeah, there's a, a, a lot of a, a Paul. Yeah, and um, let's see, actually. Um, I wanted 
So let's talk about that. Well, I'm going to get into that. It's in actually Galatians 3.27. For as many of you who are baptized in Christ, you have put on Christ. It's that kind of imagery. Is that what you mean about what, what us or what? Of Christ taking on our sins um, through at the moment of the ba- when he was baptized by John, mm. um, I was just wondering where where um, where it's written. I think it was the Corinthians five twenty one. For our sake, he, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin that was in him, and might become the righteousness of 528 God. Yeah. Okay. So yes. in the, in the Galatians and some of Paul's stuff, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, as my analogy, like. No, but I'm again kind of painting a picture. I think that I think though that we would say, and actually Luther puts it a, a little different than my analogy. Luther says it was Jesus took our sins on, and then when he was baptized, he drowned our sins there, um, which is good too. I mean, it's kind of just analogies, but there's no question. I think among our theologians, there was that point that the sin was on Jesus, and then Jesus uh, takes it to the cross. So. They would have picked up on this, though, from the Old Testament, correct? Because they knew they had to wash, change clothes, and everything else before. So they knew what baptism was. So. Yeah, and that's the word baptism comes from. Baptizo is a Greek word. Uh, I can't remember what it is in Hebrew. I'll have to go back to that. But any of it, yeah, it's been around for a while. And basically it signified to wash, right? And in fact, I think I, I have that when we talk a little bit more about that. Um, Baptism, yeah, it's baptismal to to wash. So actually, that's the signifying the water too. Everything comes from this concept of a washing. So, okay, um, any further up? Let's see. So let's. So that's I say. So the baptism of Jesus. We talked about it. He was baptized by John in the Jordan, and I just took you through that. Okay, so let's go to verse ten here because I would like to get through some some of this. So then what happens after that? He's baptized, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending uh, descending on him like a dove. Now, I know we've all seen the the dove stuff, um, but this... this, um, the heavens being torn open. I think there's some cool analogy stuff here. So... uh, this tearing open is actually booked in in Mark. And if you would here, turn in Mark to the end of Mark, almost to the very end, to Mark 15. Mark 15, 33 through 38. Mark 15, 33 through 38. So we're at the end here of Mark, and, and this is uh, entitled The Death of Jesus. Let's go through this just briefly because I want to see what goes on here. So Mark 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, remember, this is Jesus on the cross. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So that means he died, right? And then what next? This is where I'm getting at. 
And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Okay. So at Jesus' baptism, let's, uh, the, so here, when, when you read, I read a lot of this, uh, that the, the temple here that was torn apart at Jesus' death, uh, supposedly it was the temple veil, and it had embroidered on it uh, this all this, the heavenly features. So it was in the temple, the veil had heaven depicted on it. And so the tapestry was, with, was inscribed with all these heavenly spectacles, and this is coming from, from Dr. Velt. So let's look at, uh, see the study note on 1538, uh, down at the bottom on 16, uh, it says, I think they do a good job here, tearing of the curtain, which separated the most holy place of the temple from the holy place, symbolized the opened fellowship between God and his people through Christ. And that's what we have here. It's the same language that Mark's using. We've seen that other. So when he was um, baptized, heaven was torn open, just like what happened on the heaven at the temple veil. It is, it, it is death. Isn't that kind of cool? So bookend here. Um, Isaiah, um, i got a couple more minutes. Um, Isaiah and Isaiah, Isaiah 61.1 also kind of has this imagery here which says, Oh, that you, meaning, O oh, you, all, Yahweh, would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. So we have this imagery of the, the heaven tearing open, Jesus' baptism, and, and at his death. And we see it predicted in the old. And this is Yahweh coming to his people. So here Jesus is coming onto the scene amidst the splitting of the heavens, is the long-awaited eschatological coming down of Yahweh to his people right here in Jesus. So, pretty cool, huh? So this, this concept of tearing apart. Finally, let me end with this, and then uh, we'll have to catch up. Uh, we'll move on to the temptation of Jesus next week. Finally, the other imagery here, which we all know, we've seen it in stained glass windows or whatever. The Spirit is descending uh, down on him like a dove. Uh, this is the Spirit, was his permanent gift to Jesus. Um, it was given to Jesus' human nature. Um, it equipped and empowered Jesus' human nature with all that is needed then to carry out his work of redemption in his office. This is where this all starts. Therefore, the Spirit um, is in Jesus, it filled his heart and his mind, made him ready according to his human nature to perform the work that he had been born into in the world. And here, really, as Luther remarks, is where Christ really began to be the Christ, this baptism, the Holy Spirit here. Um, And we see this language in the Old Testament, the coming down of the Spirit on Jesus is uh, the anointing prophesied in the Old Testament, especially in Psalm 45, 7, which reads, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with all the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Um, Also, we see this language in Isaiah 61, where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Okay? One other thing, let's look at uh, real briefly here. Let's go to Luke. Um, to Luke, uh, is that one of my notes? Go to Luke 
16. All right, this is, remember this story? This is, um, so Jesus is rejected in his hometown. Remember this, that I'm going to read it. So Luke uh, 4, 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So here Jesus comes, his own town, synagogue. He actually stands up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Okay, it's given. Now isn't this miraculous? Jesus shows up to his church here. The, the, the scroll was given to him. Jesus unrolls the scroll from this one thing. And what does he read then that's there? Look at verse 18. Jesus reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and a recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's word. And now what did Jesus has said? Skip down to verse 21. And then he told them that after he read this about the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Right, the same spirit we're talking about here in baptism. This is what Jesus reads to his own people, and what are they? Jesus then said, "Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." Okay, so this is this is all a part of the spirit uh, Jesus at his baptism. But then recall what his people, the Nazareth, do here. Go down to verse twenty-eight. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose out and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So another example, this this spirit uh, um, about, uh, so like a dove, because why is it, why is there a dove? Because it's very nature. Why do we symbolize this this dove here? Um, the question as to why the Spirit chose the form of a dove has been asked. Luther thinks of its, the dove as frilliness, being without wrath and bitterness. Um, the Spirit desiring to show that He has no anger toward us, but is ready to help us become saved. Others in the dove point to purity, innocence, and meekness as being symbolized by the dove. So, does anybody, we're, I'm going to have to run out of time there. Next week we will get into the remaining things here, really important stuff. You are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Again, I'll finally talk about some more about what the, now that Jesus' baptism and Christian baptism, the, the similarities and differences, and then we'll move on to the temptation um, of Jesus. So, sorry I'm a little over time, so thank you all. The Lord be with you. Thank you.